This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show, Unequal Suffering, on biodiversity and species extinction with guest Eduardo Brondizio. We'll forego our usual format of segments and music breaks in favor of bringing you as much of the conversation as possible in the time allotted to us. And to that end, I'll announce the show's sponsors. Support for Interchange and WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976 and located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. And support also comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. LimestonePost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Our single music selection today is McCoy Tyner's Utopia, off of the 1968 album Tender Moments, featuring Tyner on piano, Lee Morgan on trumpet, and Bernie Maupin on tenor saxophone. To me, jazz makes a difference. To me, utopia is that pastoral golden age that likely has no there to it, but seems far more plausible as a future we might construct than the techno-sterility of the cyborg optimists as we face climate disruption and species extinction. Eduardo Brondizio sat down with me in the WFHB studios to discuss his work as the co-chair of the Global Assessment of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, or IPBES. What caught my attention and what made me want to talk to Brondizio is the glaring fact of impending extinctions that a huge number of species face and how climate disruption is but one driver of our dystopian future. Our conversation was very broad and we only found our way back to species extinction in the final minutes of the program, instead focusing on the unequal suffering brought on by the development ethics of capitalist economies. But the IPBES has a very broad charge, and it looks at so many ways that we are entangled in these systems of nature and life that it proves a narrow focus is to our terminal detriment. In what follows, we don't speak with real specificity about what can be done, but one thing seems clear to me. If you live in a city or town where there's a major economic or educational institution, then you, citizen, have a focus of activist attention. You can be heard, and these institutions can be made to act for the greater good. Let's get utopian while we can. And let's keep in mind the words of French symbolist poet and novelist Rémy de Gaumont. Man is not at the pinnacle of nature. He is in nature, one of the units of life, and nothing more. And now, unequal suffering. A conversation with Eduardo Brondizio on Interchange on WFHB. First, the platform, uh, which we call EPBES. It's a platform that is equivalent to the IPCC for climate. So it was created much more recently than the IPCC in 2012. And actually to bring attention to the broader environmental issues, biodiversity, ecosystem service, or the variety of contributions that we derive from nature, a par with climate change. Mm. Really to, to bring a broader picture in which climate, you know, is put in the context of other social and environmental change. Mm, pretty simple to say it that way. It can't yeah. be simple though, right? 
<laughs> it's not a simple organization. It's uh, no, it's not. I, I assume yeah. it's quite broad and and far reaching. How did yeah. you get involved in it? Yeah, so the organization itself today has 132 countries, mm. member countries. So it's an intergovernmental platform. I've been involved from the very beginning, mm. uh, and actually before, because the, the process that brought attention to this started at the beginning of the year 2000 with an effort called the Millennial Ecosystem Assessment. So at that time, the UN initiated, uh, at the beginning of the millennium, uh, an overall assessment on how our relationship to the environment, you know, has been changing and uh, the importance of the environment to our human, to well-being, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. a much broader agenda. The millennial assessment led to a very successful report published in 2005 that made, you know, a really clear case on our dependence on nature mm -hmm. and the drivers of change that, you know, the acceleration of the drivers of change. So that process then started a discussion about creating a platform to bring the necessary uh, light into the broader issue of changing environment and changing biodiversity. Mm. So by 2012, IPBES was established in an agenda you know, for carrying out that platform started, mm. which included the global assessment. Now, that's, it, that is centered then in the UN, or is that what's it, that's its home base? Or? It's a UN, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, format. It's supported by four UN agencies, uh, the UNEP, the Environmental UN Environment, uh, FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, UNESCO, uh, research and education organization and the UNDP, uh, UN Development Program. Mm. So it's a intergovernmental platform, you know, with the the foundations within the UN agencies, but it also independent as an organization, you know, that responds mm. to the plenary of countries. Mm. So you said uh, the 2005 report was successful. What does that mean? Successful in bringing attention mm, okay. to the relationship between human and environment and Is how that affects our human well-being. Mm -hmm. So it, it brought environment, you know, really as a social issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, you know, it's one of those questions I think is a, a, it may sound silly, but I'm always surprised that, like, what is it that needs to be, like, why do we not have that already in our minds? Like, why do we need to br have this brought to our attention that we're creatures in the environment? I understand that we've trained ourselves to feel yeah. like we're out of nature. It's part of, I guess, how we think of ourselves as humans, perhaps. That's a, a broad generalization, but we don't do much in nature for the most yeah. part anymore. We don't work in nature per se. We don't think about how things come to us, resources yeah. and whatnot. So when, when it's, when you think I need to remind people that we live in nature and that these things are interrelated, it seems shocking to me, but it's not, yeah, right? No, it's not actually, we depend more on nature today than ever. You know, I think that the fact that we don't depend directly for subsistence, right, you know, right. gives a sense that we live independently from right. the resources that, that we, we use every day. Right. But when you open your, you know, faucet or when you open your fridge, right mm -hmm. where uh, or the quality of your environment outside those are all aspects you right. know of the environment that affects our daily lives mm -hmm. again i always feel like i'm uh, hitting my head up against the past when yeah. having conversations uh like this uh, you know the last conversation on interchange was was with david wallace wells about climate disruption and part of his goal was to be or uh, was to write a book similar to rachel carson's in the in the silent spring mm -hmm. um and which you know brings you up short to say well that was 1962 i think or 63 something like that and what has happened 
You know what? What I mean, yes, you could say Retro Carson succeeded in making people aware of certain pesticides, chemicals, etc. But those industries proliferated anyway. You know, they may have used a different formula for the thing that they would they would create to kill nature. Yeah. Um, so how do, how do we how do we see success when when some sort of these these monuments of awareness? which are part of our culture, part of this culture anyway, haven't really been successful in some way. It's a complex story, I would say. You know, it has been a long way coming in terms of uh, raising awareness, starting, you know, with Rachel Carson and, and, and before and, and along with her. Um, you know, we're sort of retelling a, a, a way uh, in which our economy, our lives are connected to the environment. Mm-hmm which I think is something that we moved away already back in the mid-century, you know, with ideas of modernity and ideas of, you know, technological development as, as making us totally independent and self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And I think when we start to see the consequence of that, and particularly the unequal consequence of that, you know, because people don't suffer equally right, right, right. <laughs> of the environmental degradation. Um, so, you know, it has been a long process. and has been a process that has been... Um, it's part of a global history of development, mm-hmm. you know. So when you look at the rise of impacts and what we call the great acceleration of environmental change that happens after the Second World War, mm-hmm. you know, it starts and it has a, a very steep uh, curve of acceleration um, in the global north, you know. So so you see the post-war development taking, you know, uh, uh, taking shape in the expansion of agriculture, chemis- you know, chemical um uh, uh, you know, chem- chemical use in, in general, uh, industries, expansion of frontiers, and a number of other technologies and urbanizations and so forth. That takes place very fast after the war. And you start to see that taking shape first in the global north. And by the 1970s, people are starting to realize those impacts, mm. right? And Rachel Carson and many others that mm-hmm. came after that were already fighting with that, you know, with, with nuclear uh, you know, fallout with the chemical pollution, you know, with a, a number of other issues. What you see then is that there's a reaction in the global north in particular to those problems. So already in the early 70s, you start to see a reaction to improve environmental issues in the U.S., in Europe, in Japan, in other places. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have an exporting Hmm. of those problems elsewhere. Ah. And that's what is interesting about the global assessment is that we document 50 years of change and the trajectories of environmental change and governance over hmm. that time. Hmm. And what you see is a displacement of those impacts you know, from more wealthier regions mm-hmm. to developing regions. And within wealthier regions, you also see a displacement of that impact. You know, so when you look at environmental justice in the U.S., you see a very high correlation between more marginalized communities and environmental problems. Sure, right? sure. So what will happen is that you see an improvement and you see a reaction to environmental problems, but in an unequal way. Mm-hmm. So some regions are experiencing improvements for a long time, exporting those problems elsewhere. Mm. And so we got to a point where we're saturating the planet. You know, we're running out of frontiers, mm-hmm. so to speak. And yeah. that's one of the stories that we document in the global mm-hmm. assessment mm-hmm. is to show that global interdependence of environmental problems. We're running out of uh, uh, garbage cans in exactly. some way. Right? <laughs> exactly. And getting so saturated right. that we now see garbage, you know, everywhere, yeah. so yeah. to speak. 
This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is on the unequal suffering inflicted on humans and other species by the development ethic of capitalist economies. In other words, all the world's your garbage can. Our guest is distinguished professor of anthropology at Indiana University and expert on biodiversity, Eduardo Brandizio. Yeah, it's one of the, um, I guess it's, an in, it's a worthwhile metaphor in some ways. And, and even if it sort of distracts us occasionally, if we think about, you know, the plastic in the ocean um, as representative of carbon in the ocean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ocean's full. Yeah, of carbon, right? Yeah. And, and and so it's releasing it. It's got to really, it does that anyway, but it's so full that it can't accept anymore as it releases it. So it's, it's warming the planet. And it's, it's one of those, um, they, if you think about it, the actual visible, as you say, the visible pollution is now helping awareness. Do you think that if people are seeing that kind of thing? Yeah. I, I remember when I was growing up, uh, um, aside from uh, forest fire, you know, this a bear that said, don't, you know, only you can prevent forest fires, yeah. right? He's in the commercial. And then there's uh, a Native American crying about pollution, like yeah. trash on the, on the side uh, of the road. No. It turns out the Native American was actually an Italian-American actor. Yeah. But, you know, the idea is that, you know, you're polluting. And this was, you know, 70s yeah. at the time. And then you, we can see the success, as you say, of certain uh, institutions, governmental institutions. EPA is created. We've got the Clean Air Act mm-hmm. in this country in particular. So we have successes like cleaning up uh, the Cleveland, uh, you yeah. know, the the fire. Uh, I forget the, the the lake that is or the river. And, uh, new, you know, you see pictures of New York City that are, you know, terribly smog bound. Yeah. And, and so all these things change. At the same time, we've got we got a reaction against regulation that happens yeah. at the same time, and those things begin to be folded back. But the more interesting story, which you already started telling, I've uh, gone on and on too long, but uh, is that when you clean up some places, you export you, you push it elsewhere. <laughs> it has been like that. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit. Is there a, a pretty good example of a way in which you know there there's a really good story, not a good story, but a, a way in which we can see you know you may have cleaned up this, but this was made dirtier, or this this is where you exploited this particular ability to pollute here while you cleaned yeah. up over here. Well, I mean, first, what, what's visible and what's not visible? Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the issues that we come across today, that, you know, the environment has improved significantly in this region, for instance, right? I mean, and I don't think we appreciate enough the, mm-hmm. the value of the Clean Air, the mm-hmm. Clean Water Act, and other efforts that were put in place right. during the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And we disregard their importance today. So a lot of people in the global north in particular have, you know, have an impression of their local environment as improving. It's nothing is wrong, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, when you look at, you know, the, the sourcing of produce, the sourcing of manufacturing goods, the sourcing of, you know, commodities, these are coming from other places right. where you have extremely, you know, intense expansion of frontier over forests, mm. you know. So that's an example. You look at forest region in the U.S., it's being regenerated in most places. Right. And in, now you look at deforestation in tropical countries, is mm. a, has a direct correlation with, you know, the, right. the market and trade of goods that are used right. here and elsewhere. Uh, you look at the manufacturing Right, and exporting of manufacturing to places where you have lower regulations, mm-hmm. right, and therefore today you have an incredible amount of air pollution and water pollution in parts of Asia, right. parts of Central America, parts of Latin America, increasingly going to Africa, right. right? So you know, it we live in a global interdependent economy mm-hmm. uh, that has consequence for the environment, mm-hmm. but we haven't been able to grasp 
on the impact of our actions and yeah. our local actions on this broader a chain of economic events. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a, a blind, you know, like you're blind to those other things. Yeah. Um, and also um, callous might be a, a fair yeah. word, you know, or, or um, you yeah. know, it's, I think it's a fair word. It's probably even a nice word, yeah. right? To say. Insensitive. Uh, it's, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Very insensitive. Very insensitive. But also, like, I don't even know how people respond if you confront them with it. Like an insensitivity and even maybe aggression against it to mm. say well too bad you know and this is i think uh that's the trumpian moment where he says yeah. we're winning you're losing yeah right but you're I saying this is this is interdependence it's interdependent so we you're feel, not going to win the, yeah we're know, not going to win this particular war there's yeah. no winner because even if you see improvements at a local level on the aggregate mm -hmm. you see a decline in environmental issues and that ends up affecting everyone right. you know so you look at well warming you look at ocean acidification right. you know you you look at water crisis and you look at other issues that are cascading effects right. of global environmental change you know so we can protect ourselves from some of those problems a little bit but right. not all of them yeah. and eventually as we get to a point of saturation of mm -hmm. the global environment we start to feel that right you know? right so, so in what ways does the you know this as a kind of um uh, complement to the ipcc if if we can think of it that way yeah what what ways is it um, specifically trying to to do that work you know and you know when we talk about species extinction mm -hmm. you know is is this panel in particular charged with tr really tracking this particular aspect you know extinction comes from xyz we're going to track this this kind of pollution we're going to track we have to track species in the first place, right? Which is a fairly new concept as, a, not a new concept, but very difficult to do, yeah. you know? And so you use a lot of complex models to try to figure out how many species are there, how many species have we lost, even though it's kind of hard to prove any of that in terms mm -hmm. of, I, I don't know, we've never seen that. <laughs> we've yeah. seen two of those or, you yeah. know, how do we track whether it's extinct or not? So the, the, the assessment was intended to give a broader story mm -hmm. and put climate in context and okay. also to pay attention to those issues that we haven't paid enough attention, like biodiversity mm -hmm. and the a multitude of other contributions that we derive from nature mm -hmm. that are totally invisible to us, right. but that you know are totally part of our daily lives and our economy. So what we do is that we don't tackle to tackle a particular issue like species extinction. What, what we did is that we asked questions about we are guided by five main questions, mm -hmm. right? The first question is, what have been, you know, the the main changes in biodiversity in several aspects of nature during the last 50 years? Mm -hmm. So we'll take a 50-year perspective to look broadly on all aspects of land, ocean, and, and inland waters globally to track, you know, the status of the environment. Then we ask... What have been the drivers of those changes? What are the direct drivers of change? What are the indirect or the root causes of change? Mm -hmm. And we track that for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And what are the consequences of those changes for the benefits that we derive from nature? Okay. Right? From mm -hmm. food, from material benefits, from non-material benefits, and from what we call regulating benefits, which are the things that you don't see. You know, the nature that cleans the water that... You know, after rain, that cleans air, that produces soil productivity, that, you know, allows pollinators to exist and right. so forth. So the first part of the assessment, we asked those questions. What have been happening in the, the last 50 years? Mm -hmm. Then we look at the last decade and we evaluate the global environmental agreements, in particular 
the Global Biodiversity Agreement, which was put in place between 2011 and 2020, which has 20 international agreed targets, and the Sustainable Development Goals, which have been put in place from 2015 to 2030. And we look at each one of those targets and indicators to see how well we have done during the past 10 years, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then we look, looking forward, we use scenarios and models to look at the next 10, 20, 30 years. What are the plausible features that we see based on the trends that we have today? Mm-hmm. Where are we going? Where, where do we see those uh, different types of drivers interacting and changing the environment? And then we look at options. What have been the options that we have been putting in place um, during the, 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 you know, the last uh, few decades? What options are uh, there today for us to tackle those problems? Mm. So it goes all the way from telling a story of the last 50 years, how we have done in the last 10 years, what are the plausible features going you know, for the next few decades, and what options do we have? So it's a very comprehensive assessment and includes you know, analysis of climate or we benefit from climate from the climate reports, but mm-hmm. put that in perspective of broader environmental change and broader social mm. changes. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is on the unequal suffering inflicted on humans and other species by the development ethic of capitalist economies. In other words, all the world's your garbage can. Our guest is distinguished professor of anthropology at Indiana University and expert on biodiversity, Eduardo Brandizio. So 50 years, uh, not a whole lot of time in the past, but it's easy to, I assume, track the, I assume, decline (laughs) of of everything. Um, Even if, as you say, there are, you know, stories of positive things that happen around in aggregate, we we're headed in the wrong direction in terms of species diversity and other things of that yeah. that sort. So, uh, so tell a brief story about that direction from you know from fifty years forward. Um, what you know what has been the story? Why 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 why, well, why are we going in that direction? Yeah. So you know when you look at status and trends, and I'll get to the species extinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did an evaluation of uh, eighteen categories of things that we derive from nature material, non-material, and, and other benefits. And from those 18 categories, right, if we look for a 15-year period, only the ones that we derive directly benefit from it, which is food, feed, uh, materials, um, yeah, in particular those, they have, we have been able to increase them, mm. right? So we continue to derive an increasing amount of resources from nature. Okay. All other 14 categories have declined. Mm. And those 14 categories are all the ecosystem functions that allow us to have the, the, the other material categories, mm. like regulating air, water quantity, soil productivity, you know, diversity and pollinators, for instance. Mm-hmm. And also some of the non-material categories, you know, like the, the, the quality of the environment that, that we benefit spiritually or emotionally, sure. right? Yeah. The access to healthy environments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, those have declined. Mm. So that's part of that 50 years. When you look at the causes of that, um, we were able to rank based on all this, this work is based on systematic review of existing mm-hmm. knowledge and data about it. So we're able to rank the five main drivers, direct drivers of change. Land use change mm. has been the, the, by far the, the most important driver, mm. right? How much we're changing 
land in terms of agriculture expansion, urbanization, infrastructure development, and so forth. Direct resource extractions come next. So we've been increasing our appropriation of resources at a many folds in, mm. in the past 50 years. Climate change is already third mm. and is projected to, you know, in some regions to become the first sure. driver of change. But it's already third in terms of, of the, the impact that it has on those, uh, the benefits that we derive. And then we have pollution. Uh, and that change, I mean, in, in water, you may have, you know, much higher pollution is much more important in freshwater, for instance, mm. than other. Uh, and then we have invasive alien species, mm. which is a Incredible how important it is as a driver of biodiversity change okay. globally. Hmm. Anyhow, so we see those declines. We see um, the drivers of those declines. We also see a lot of reactions and people reacting to that at the local level in particular. You see an international level as well, people responding to that and trying to confront those changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we see a lot of policies trying to deal with those direct drivers, right? So you have protection trying to prevent land use change from happening or regulation trying to prevent pollution from happening. Uh, You have invasion, alien species, eradication, and so forth. What we haven't seen are issues dealing with the indirect drivers or the root causes of change, Mm -hmm. meaning how the economy works, right? right? Right. How do environmental degradation is internalized or not internalized in the economy? Mm -hmm. How do we value things or the disregard that we have, you know, for things that we don't see, for the biodiversity that we don't see, for all those environmental functions that we benefit from but are invisible to us? We haven't been able to to address those issues. Right, the, the fundamental economic and trade issues, mm-hmm. and the fundamental societal values mm. that actually lend support, you know, to the way we carry our economy. Is there um, a real disconnect or uh, a difficulty in trying to have conversations when you talk about the economic benefits or the economic uh, foundation of how things uh, happen? So, uh, as you say, we develop, and this is part of the economic system that creates wealth for certain people livable areas for other people, terrible areas for other people, mm-hmm. right? So we 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 still see nature and in, in this conversation we talk about nature as as benefits to human development or benefits to human uh progress or growth, et cetera. And not see nature as just needing to be growing on its own or and not you know or or succeeding on its own in some sense you know it's it's a hard conversation to have when people mock polar bear extinction or you know mock you you show the polar bear on the on the ice you know the single polar bear that's always in all those pictures online yeah. out in the ocean all by himself as if you know who cares about the polar bear like you know too bad for the polar bear species have always gone extinct and this idea that we have to figure out a way to understand that well if the polar bear goes for this reason, then other things happen, you know, that, that are also related to those reasons. And then also related to the fact that the polar bear is not there anymore. And then that happens and that changes this and that. And, but we often talk about it in terms of what will happen to us, right? It's kind of hard to move, move into how to create, how to allow biodiversity to be diverse unless we attach it to this yeah. sort of emotional, personal, maybe, maybe we're trying to have some scare tactics yeah. as well, right? Because all this failure of a sort of natural imagination is about use, use value, right? And the blindness of, of how we live to nature entirely. Yeah. So, I, you know, how do, you, how do we make those connections? It's easy enough to, I mean, undeniable what's happening, right? But how do you get me, my neighbors, 
you know, the guys two blocks over, the guys in another state, the government of this state, the government of Santiago or, you know, anywhere to, I mean, but that's what this is, right? The way this report is intended to make something happen on that large level. How do we, how do you think about connecting in that way? Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, we, we're very anthropocentric. <laughs> right? In a, in a bad way, generally. We're really, and usually anthropocentric to the little few things that really benefit us. Right, right, right. right? right, right. Um, you know, what, what we try to do first, I think, and, and, and of course following uh, many others, is first to call attention, you know, to, yeah, there are anthropocentric aspects that we depend on mm-hmm. and that are invisible to us. And we first need to recognize that, you know, our daily lives, the, the, the quality of life that we have depends on a quality environment, right. right? And I think that's an entry point that, you know, try to opening up the eyes of people that, you know, don't take your water for granted. Right, right. Don't take the diversity and the quality of your f- food for granted, right? Uh, don't take the landscapes that you enjoy, right. right? Or the lake that you benefit during the weekend for granted. Right. I think that's the first step. So you open up, you know, uh, I think the minds of people that have for generations now grown up, use it to see the impact of their choices, move it far away, you know, not affecting the environment next to them. Uh, We export our garbage and pollution as much as we can. Uh, So opening up, that is important, you know, for people to see that uh, their quality of life, you know, depends on that. also on an anthropocentric level is to think about the future. You know, we're preventing or we, we, our choices, so they are limiting the options and the opportunities sure. of the next generation. You know, so just from that level, it's important. Now, the other part of it, you know, is to call attention to the intrinsic value of nature mm-hmm. and other species, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, a slow but, you know, important shift that is happening mm-hmm. in society in, in recognizing um, the beings in other beings, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. sort of, of really have a broader view of life on Earth mm-hmm. and be more, you know, respectful of other species and so forth. And we see progress towards that. You know, if you look at the... Uh, uh, you know, Pope Francis, Laudato Si, mm-hmm. you know, which is a, a beautiful document, I think. You know, it really tries to shift, you know, that, that idea of, you know, humans as superior and, you know, at, at the, the helm of everything to a more respectful view of nature. Mm-hmm. So progressively, I think we're starting to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have a, um, yeah, I mean, to, to open up yeah. and, and to have a more respectful view of, of, of life itself. Yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is on the unequal suffering inflicted on humans and other species by the development ethic of capitalist economies. Our guest is distinguished professor of anthropology at Indiana University and expert on biodiversity, Eduardo Brandizio. You know, we run up against the problem of trying to um, work against the way the particular this particular society or or uh, economic structure work against the way we do everything day to day and having to open up your eyes to a lot of those issues means having to understand the wrong way you do things the ways in which you do take things for granted and then not knowing how to not take it for granted you know how how do i not take these things for granted you know yeah. how do i positively change how i 
perceive these things. Uh, I don't live in nature. I have to travel to nature usually. Even in this area, I still go to the lake. I still go to, it's close here, but it's also manufactured in some way. It's not real nature. It's not wildness, as, as some people might say. Um, the, the only thing that, that I struggle with, I think, is, um, in a lot of the climate documents I read that try to talk about the best way to sort of prepare or adapt or be resilient is to really cast yourself back into kind of indigenous perspectives, right? Which are the cultures that have been generally turned into our trash dumps in, in the West anyway. Uh, and that means living a different kind of life, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense that there's a way, I don't have a sense that there's a way to maintain what we're doing right now, even sitting in this room to make a difference for species extinction or climate change? Well, I mean, that's the, what you touch on is that, you know, we have now for, for a long time, uh, you know, sort of considered culture and nature separate. Mm. So it's the famous culture-nature dichotomy. So we talk about nature as far away from where we live. But in fact, that's not the no, case. Right. I'm you know, nature is right. here right now. Right. 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 I made the fallacy myself. Yeah. 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 So nature is here right now, I think. And, and that's the, the right important issue that right. we try to break with the report. We are intrinsically connected to nature, whether you live in New York or Paris or Bloomington, right? right? And uh, it's making awareness of that connection that helps us to change, mm. you know, because, because we're, we're very territorial beings still. You know, we, we get signals and perception from our immediate environment, and we still don't have the tools to understand that what we do or what we depend on may come from far away right. or may depend on processes that are much larger, right? Mm -hmm. So we are changing slowly from that very territorial localized perspective mm -hmm. where we kind of tend to control our environment mm -hmm. uh, to uh, a broader perspective to understand that interdependence mm -hmm. that we have uh, and that nature is interdependent, you mm -hmm. know? So uh, I think there are many moments where we were reminded of that uh, in the past, like when you, you think about acid rain, mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those things that it, it, it doesn't respect borders. Mm -hmm. So when you start to see that it's spreading and people mm -hmm. say, what's happening here if there's right. no factories here and so forth? You know, you start to realize the interconnection of those things. Uh, or if you look at pollution today in general and how it is spreads from one place to another. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to come to grasp that um, we are interdependent. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to think broader than our immediate environment mm -hmm. and we need to bring nature, you know, Mm -hmm. back to our sinking to our economy um yeah our daily lives yeah it's it's um you know we struggle with i think the way we're at least again i can only really sp i say we all the time i mean me and my mm -hmm. own understanding of and how i've been brought up in this particular culture but you know the idea of how we regulate certain things for human health um without necessarily understanding the way we talk about those things so we can regulate so we'll say we uh make laws for it to you have to wear your seatbelt you know for whatever reason if this is an insurance industry mm -hmm. uh, thing or anything else you know people argue about your independence your freedom why should i put on a seatbelt, all that kind of stuff, yeah. but also with smoking cigarettes, mm -hmm. a much a larger problem, yeah. right? And we talk about, well, cigarettes now are, they basically come with, you know, you're going to die if you smoke this cigarette on their labels even. Not so much in the U.S. I mean, there are those warning labels, but, you know, in other countries in particular, it says yeah. everything, this will kill you <laughs> on the label itself, right? Um, it's very graphic it's very images. Clear, yeah, and you do get graphic <laughs> images, and not in the U.S., of course. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, the understanding that when you smoke a cigarette, you are not just 
uh, polluting yourself. You know, but it's one of those things that we culturally accept, even though we stopped accepting it on mm-hmm. some level. People still smoke. People still think they have a right to smoke. They still think they can throw their butts. Yeah. This is a narrow, small thing yeah. I'm talking about. I'm not trying to be mad at smokers mm-hmm. per se, but just the industry itself, but the way in which we think about the freedom to do what we want to do yeah. is tied to like how it's hard to see beyond. Yeah. That's what a you're good, doing. Yeah, that's a good point, especially at a global level, mm. because we still have a, a, an idea that resources are infinite and the globe can absorb everything. You know, so you don't connect of how we use resources to the impact that it has right. on the on on others, right? And what 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 I think we have evolved to is to we have put so much pressure on the environment. Mm. You know that uh, many of those resources are now at a at a point of saturation, right. in where the use of resource in one place affects the use of resource in another place. So it's the same issue as a cigarette, right? Um, let's say we are here in this room, right? We have one common air, mm-hmm. right? So if you if you smoke, right. you are subtracting right. from the clean air that I have. Mm-hmm. So we share a common resource. Right air in this room. Globally, is the same thing. Mm-hmm. We share many common resources, being air, being the atmosphere, being the ocean, being fisheries, being water, or, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the biological diversity that we have globally. But we always had that impression that, yeah, the globe is so big that, you know, if we use resource here, it has enough time to regenerate, and it's not going to affect resource elsewhere. Even the idea that you're a small, insignificant creature in this world yeah. allows you to sort of say, well, nothing I do makes a difference. Yeah. Nothing we do makes, makes a difference in this giant. But that's the biggest change. Right, you know, right. we got to a point by doubling the population in this last 50 years mm. and, and perhaps quadruple, I think, uh, trade and consumption mm. to a point where, yeah, we got to a point of saturation. Mm. So what happens is that, you know, when you... Uh, let's say for fisheries or for air pollution, you know, when you start to use your share mm-hmm. in this corner of the planet, that is affecting uh, a resource, you know, that is also used in other parts of the planet. Right. So globally, many of those resources have become common pool resources. Mm-hmm. If I use it, it's affect your use it, right. you know, and this is a new reality mm-hmm. at, the, at the global scale. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is on the unequal suffering inflicted on humans and other species by the development ethic of capitalist economies. Our guest is distinguished professor of anthropology at Indiana University and expert on biodiversity, Eduardo Brondizio. Well, let's uh, let's shift into all the dire situations that we're, we're going to deal with. Um, these are these are, I think, ge- generally we can see the difficulties in trying to get people to understand these things in their their personal life, in their ideas of certain ways people have responded philosophically to nature, to technology, to urban life, to the idea of living uh, without needing to pay attention to nature unless there's a storm that you have to hide from or things of that mm-hmm. nature. Um, and uh, so so I think other than the difficulty of trying to imagine convincing people to change how they've, how they've been or become over time, uh, trying to understand these things are happening at such a level and at such a speed now, right, yeah. that, that we – is it worth our time to try to convince anyone other than particular – 
large bodies who can make changes. I mean, I, I think that change is important at all levels. Sure. And all levels make a difference. You okay. know? Sure. Now, of course, you have different kinds of issues <laughs> right. that will require, you know, require actually action at, at different levels. Mm -hmm. But let me uh, talk about the overall situation first. Sure. So when you look on, on the aggregate, um, what we have documented is that, you know, about 75% of the terrestrial surface of the planet is significantly influenced by human activities, mm. right? So you have that kind of scale. Uh, for oceans, it's over 65% mm. of pressures that we put on fisheries, mining, or coastal development, and so forth. And for wetlands, for water is equally high, you know, but for wetlands, it, you know, we, we have more or less dominated 85% globally. So, yeah, we have, you know, sort of a global scale and, uh, of impacts. And we have, you know, a system based on global trade and circulation of resources. So there are many actions that are need to be done at national, regional, and global levels mm -hmm. because of the nature of, and the scale of the problem. You need coordination right. at that level. But local actions and individual actions are equally important, mm -hmm. right? Because they aggregate, you know, they first, they act on local issues, which is important because right away they contribute to improve, to change, to raise awareness of issues that are local and that affect people's daily lives. Mm -hmm. So they're extremely important because they, you know, they, they have an immediate effect. Um, they can lead to major transformative changes. You know, when you see the aggregation of, you know, behavioral change, for instance, when some behavioral changes start to become normalized, it can have a cascading effect very fast, you know. So, you know, to a simple example, when just a few years ago, I started to look at, to see my daughter in high school here, starting to use reusable bottles of mm -hmm. water, right? Mm -hmm. um, which was very new at the time, a few years ago. But in no time, it became an issue that every student had to have their own reusable bottle. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a simple example, but an example where, Something becomes a social norm mm -hmm. and can have a, a significant change. Consumption, you know, you look at uh, consumers, for instance, when they boycott a problem mm -hmm. or, you know, when uh, requires certification, you know, for social and environmental issues, it starts to have an impact on larger corporations and larger chains. So, you know, especially today with social media, you know, there's a huge uh, uh, potential for small changes and individual changes to have um, what we call a nonlinear effect. I mean, mm -hmm. to aggregate very fast at a, at a larger level. So you have a, a significant role for individuals who are acting, who are making a difference, who are raising awareness, extremely important. Now, that has a limitation because, you know, some of those issues require coordination at a larger level. They require to change regulations about pollution. They require to, uh, to internalize the costs of, you know, environmental degradation in trade, right? Uh, uh, or joint agreement between countries, you know, to, to set goals for decreasing particular, right. you know, uh, uh, particular drivers of change. Mm -hmm. I guess then, you know, a question for me, uh, and I, I want to always bring our particular economic situation into play with this, mm -hmm. and it, but it's such a, like for me, it's such an easy thing to say if there's continuing development is the word I think you use yeah. primarily, which I think is a good overriding idea. Where where can we develop means that certain people uh, succeed, you know, uh, and, and live well in that developed space while underdeveloping or taking away development opportunities in other places. So if we just say, 
The problem is is frequently the idea that there are large governments, large institutions, large uh, corporations, you know, um, military in- interests, you know, all these things sort of combine to create this kind of barrier to change, to a barrier to changing how we develop and how we might need to ungrow, right, <laughs> to degrow in a lot of ways, right? And the idea is that we try to try to push these things forward into the economic space so people have more sense that might make sense to them, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that it's going to be a cost to not do these things, right? It's going to cost more yeah. as we wait, as you continue to wait, yeah. as you continue to wait, the cost to make those changes are going to be so astronomical that you're actually harming yourself by not doing it right now. And you're harming, not even just your, almost your immediate future, you're harming, you're losing that future battle. You're losing money every day you wait to make those transitions. And this is, I think, in every climate thing I've looked at, mm-hmm. talks about the economics of of the the benefit of making the change now, no matter the cost. Because in literally a decade, you're going to be paying so much more yeah. for, for you know, what's happening around us. Yeah, it's a tricky balance, you know, right? because you, 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 you need investments. Right. In the beginning, you need a mind change, which is perhaps the right. hardest part, right, for people <laughs> right. to change uh, the way they think. And sure. we have very little information about the counterfactuals, meaning mm-hmm. what would be the cost right. of not acting, right. right? And for conservation, this is very true. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we don't know how to make that argument. We don't know. There's not as much data on... And, and knowledge about, you know, to make the argument of these are the implications of not acting right. in conservation, in preserving pollinators, you know, and in, right. in, in doing these kinds of acts. Um, so we are very good after the fact of calculating the damage, right? right? But not in advance of thinking about the potential gains that mm-hmm. we have in acting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, I think a lot of the impacts that we have are unequally distributed. Mm, right. So a lot of the time you don't see, you know, and people are suffering the impacts elsewhere, right. uh, which is a tremendous cost, right? There's a tremendous cost that are not accounted for. There's yeah. a lot of... That's the worst part of it, really. It's, yeah. you know, in, the, in a world where you think you have so much easy access to information, easy access to even see other parts of the world if you wanted to, even the fact that you see it on your computer or you see it on your TV, it's yeah. still not close to you. You know, it's still not a part yeah. of your life. And But yet we can actually go here to that, de- that sort of degradation of other people, which is is still obvious here in Indiana. It's still obvious not too far down the street from here if we wanted to go look around, right? But we're not going to go there. The people who make the money here in this town, the people who make decisions in this town, the people, you know, it's something of an abstraction to make life better. Right. So uh, those things are difficult to, to deal with, I think. Um, what uh, uh, for you, Eduardo, what like you have to have um, maybe you have nightmares every night. I don't know. You do a lot no. of this. Re- okay. <laughs> you do a lot of research and you've got to you got to deal with a lot of this information. That's that's that, as we said, it's, it's surely frightening on many levels. You know, species diversity is necessary. The extinction of species causes the extinction of other species. You know, we've had what we call extinction events over, you know, in the, in the, in the time, you know, geological history or whatever. Right. So we're in a sixth extinction event. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, That's an interesting debate. uh, Well, okay. Yeah. We can Um, talk about it. So, so, uh, but the pro- projections are pretty dire in that space too. Like ninety six percent of you know, we we just sort of following in these places where I don't. Again, I I want to be able to say um, there are things to be done, 
but I'm struggling with it. Yeah. Right. I'm st- even, even in this place where I might see some change because of certain community members and people gathering together and, and people being able to elect other people who will make changes or people being on boards at the university who will make a change. You know, we always are waiting for that power to change, right? Because of the systems are so interrelated that I feel, I feel powerless frequently. Mm-hmm. Even sitting here trying to talk to you, this has some power. No, it's not a whole lot of power, but it has some power. Yeah. You know, I don't know what else to do. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I tend to look at where we see some bright spots, where mm-hmm. people are reacting, you know, both at the individual level and all the way to the international level. I think there's a, is a momentum building mm-hmm. because it has become so obvious right. the, the consequence of the economic mm-hmm. growth model that we have used. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we can separate environmental problems from social inequality anymore. Mm-hmm. So those things are coming together for okay. people to realize that it's more than an environmental issue. Right. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a social issue. It's a development issue. Um, that has a lot of consequence for us if we don't deal with. Um, and so I see I I try to take a broader look that okay, there's a rising, mm-hmm. you know, consciousness and, and, and willing to act. Mm-hmm. You see the pressure mounting at the, the global level in right. general. So I tend to look at those bright spots mm-hmm. in some ways to, you know, to, to be sure. encouraged, <laughs> uh, encouraged by it. Um, we have done a lot. I mean, when you look, when you, do, you know, we look at our review of um, policies and actions and you see examples at, in every sector you know, you, you see examples in agriculture, in fisheries, in forestry, in, you know, uh, industrial activities. You see good examples mm. developing. At the same time, you see a persisting, you know, idea of economic development that, you know, goes back to the mid-20th century, right? That idea that economic growth is an end in itself. Right. And that environmental degradation and social inequality are inevitable consequence of it. Mm-hmm. We tend to accept that idea still today, right. you know, and, and that's the hardest change I think for us to right. to move from. Is you know, to to economic growth is important, but it's a means to it. So you, you know, it, it, it's it, it's changing what we accept as a consequence of mm-hmm. economic growth. Mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is on the unequal suffering inflicted on humans and other species by the development ethic of capitalist economies. In other words, all the world's your garbage can. Our guest is distinguished professor of anthropology at Indiana University and expert on biodiversity, Eduardo Brondizio. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, well, it's a pleasure, it. yeah. Uh, and we haven't talked about species extinction. <laughs> let's do it real quick. Real quick, let's do it. Let's do it. We should. We should. Let's talk about it. Just uh, we, give me give me a summary of it. Uh, species extinction is one of the, again you you note in this particular report million a million species extinct, or yeah. you know, and this is obviously uh, something that's again hard to get your head around and yeah. and to to even know what it means. So that it was an interesting part of the report because, as I've been, you know, uh, saying, it's a much broader report, right? right? It, has a, it tells a, a much bigger story, but it does a very careful analysis of biodiversity, mm-hmm. right? In, in in many aspects, and uh, what we been able to do from different lines of evidence is to look at, you know, how many species are threatened today, mm-hmm. uh, right? And what are and when and given the projections that we see now with climate change, 
you know, which is, you know, you're shifting habitats, shifting assemblages of species and, and environmental conditions. The projection of continuous drivers of land use, pollution, extraction, and invasive alien species. When you look at those things together, right, you see uh, from different lines of evidence, you see, uh, you know, over the next, the century, uh, a significant number of species being threatened as, mm-hmm. as we calculated. You know, it varies from group to group, right? So you look at amphibians, for instance, they're the, 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 the groups with the highest, I think, levels over 40% mm. have some level of threat today or, you know, during, during the coming decades. Uh, you look at reefs, you know, a third of yeah. the global reefs. And, and that's a, a place where you see, you may see very quick tipping points, mm-hmm. you know, where degradation scales very fast. Uh, you look at major predators, for instance, you know, in both the Hestrian marine environments, and you see significant numbers of those. Now, uh, yeah, so what we did was projecting those groups of species that are threatened today. Mm-hmm. Um, Looking both at the, the monitoring that exists, for instance, IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, they have, uh, you know, very extensive monitoring of data that we are able to use to calculate of that globally. We look at the changing habitats, uh, from satellite data and other kinds of data. What are current changes and what are projected changes and changes projected with land, with climate change, mm-hmm. right? So when you look at those together, what you see is a significant change in, in many cases, decrease on the available habitats mm-hmm. for species. So you have species that do not have enough habitats or enough viable populations, mm. you know, to survive. Right. And when you add that to the pressures of extraction, uh, direct extraction or, or use, the, the situation that we're able to model is that, yeah, on, 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 on about 500,000 species across many groups are, you know, currently or entering into a, a situation of uh, risk of, you know, uh, over this century. Mm-hmm. And another half of it are insects, yeah, which we don't know very well. Uh, but, you know, it's only a, a, and that's a tentative estimate, but from what, you know, evidence available, it's about 10% of, of insects you know, are in that situation of may not be able to hmm. to have enough habitats or viable populations in in this coming. Hmm. Do you century. feel this report you have is um, like many people fa- feel about the IPCC a conservative report? Um, it's conservative. So there I mean, are extremes that are far greater, yeah. like you that are ju- justifiable in statistical analyses to say these extremes are possible, very possible, plausible, you know, if other things fall into line even. But so the the conservative report um, doesn't really scare us enough, perhaps even, even though these numbers are huge. These numbers are huge. They're actually hard for people to grasp, yeah, you know, the yeah. number of species. Uh, but we use it conservative estimates, yeah. you know, both uh, in relation to the total number of species um, and in relation to, to the, the you know, the, the change in habitats, we try to be conservative. Mm-hmm. But even though when you project available data and, you know, plausible changes in habitats, extents, mm-hmm. and so forth, that's what we get from mm-hmm. the model. Why be conservative? Do you have to in terms of the... the well, because to- there are many areas of knowledge that we're still, you know, mm-hmm. developing. You know, so yeah. we, we don't know a lot of those species, yeah. right? Right. Uh, we know that the, the 
you know, we know that they exist. Right. We know where they are, sure. right? We, right. We, we know, in many cases, the distribution mm -hmm. of habitats for many family groups and so forth. But there's a lot of knowledge that needs to be right. developed. In, well, even if you, uh, if you accept, as, as I think is now the floor of our best case scenario with climate, with warming as two degrees Celsius, mm -hmm. which is now the best case scenario. Um, if you yeah. have the sense that it, climate's going to move to your number one spot on how it affects species, extinction, and biodiversity, then it's probably yeah. necessary, maybe in your next report, uh, to be more extreme or mm -hmm. move uh, move away from some of the conservative well, I mean, numbers. We did in our, you know, our scenarios about... Uh, even if we, if we, you know, if the warming is held at 1.5 to 2.5, the majority of the history species ranges are projected to shrink significantly, sure. even holding at that. Right. And, and most people level. now are not expecting that even. So, yeah. So it's yeah. not a rosy picture. No, it's not. And yeah. I mean, to end, actually, one aspect that is very important in this report, and I think is the one that deserves a lot of attention, and, and it, it's, it hasn't received as much as needed. When you look at the sustainable development goals, mm -hmm. right, the 17 goals for 2030, right, that includes a, a number of social goals for poverty, for hunger, for health, for equality, for resilient urban areas, for sustainable energy, and, and so forth. We did an analysis of each one of those goals and the indicators and targets. We've seen them. And what we show is that if we do not reach the environmental goals, I mean, improving uh, environmental conditions in land and water and so forth, we have compromised already 80% of the sustainable development goals. And that's for the next decade. Right. So in a very short term, you know, right. the, the, if we don't address yeah. key environmental issues that we know how to address today, right. we're compromising right. significant number of social issues. Right. You know, yeah. so, and, and I think that is the important right. news here that just in the next 10 years, right. you know, we have a chance to bring together and to address environmental problems and social problems in a more synergistic way. Mm -hmm. Or the opposite, you know, relegate many of our social goals and environmental goals to uh, a situation that will be more unequal than today. Right. For sure. Well, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm really glad to talk to my own town. You know, good, good, and, good. And to, to talk to the, my good. friends and colleagues awesome. in Bloomington. Thanks very much. That's our show. This is Still Utopia by McCoy Tyner off of the 1968 album tender moments. Many thanks to Eduardo Brondizio for joining me in the studio to discuss his work as the co-chair of the Global Assessment of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services of IPBES. On all fronts, we're facing cascading changes that will lead to mass extinctions. We all must step in front of it. Today is the day, the only day. Next Tuesday will be my final show as producer and host of Interchange, and I'll go out nearly as I started in 2013 with a show about Henry Thoreau, a man who understood how to be in nature and live a life with principles. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kyrie Greenberg is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.